This audio recording is presented by New City in downtown Orlando. So today I get the honor of preaching the second part of the calling portion of our See and Display series. For those of you who haven't been with us, we've been in a series on what we think is a good way to summarize the Christian life. And that is, the Christian life is about seeking to see Jesus and seeing him. And then responding by displaying him in our everyday lives. And the Christian life, uh, we can go ahead and put that up there, uh, looks kind of like this, okay? Like a NASCAR track, except the opposite way. So starting here, we seek to see Jesus. We believe that Jesus uh, has ordained or given us ways, we call them means of grace, to see him. And Ted preached a sermon or at least one sermon on public worship, private worship, gospel community, and sleep and Sabbath. And in those things, in these rhythms, or in these disciplines, we seek to see. And because of God's grace, we actually see him. And when we see him, we desire to display him because inside of us is this desire to invite other people into our joy. And so in our desiring to display him, we realize that every Christian has a common calling to the life of love. That is, if you know God, you will become more loving. If you have been changed by God, you will become like him, which is loving. And so Ted preached uh, sermons on a life of love through our words, through the words that we speak, and also through our emotions. You see, every Christian, we said last week, is called to the common calling of the life of love. But if you go one layer deeper, we understand that Underneath this common calling is a more specific calling, right? How does a stay-at-home mom display Jesus through her words and emotions different than an entrepreneur, different than a pastor, different than a doctor, different than you name it? Last week, we picked up this idea even deeper, and we said that God has designed each one of us uniquely. And so we have this common calling particularly to follow Jesus in the life of love through our words and our emotions. And then God, in his kindness, has given us a specific calling that is unique to you. And we said last week that there are various ways that we see this calling. Uh, We see this calling through the strengths that God has given us. We see this calling as we walk along the path following him. And we realize that God gives each one of us an assignment. He's assigned circumstances. He's assigned gifts. He's assigned uh, opportunity. He's assigned family of origin. All outside of our control. But he's assigned those things to us and called us to follow him in that walking. And we also said that it would be really nice if Paul were able to tell us what our assignment is. But you notice he didn't tell us. And we said he didn't tell us because he can't. You see, no one knows your calling except God. As we discover in our walking the unique abilities that God has given us, the way our stories play into his calling on our life, we realize that it's discovered through intimacy with Christ, through plotting. There's no hopping, there's no skipping, there's no jumping, there's no microwaving, there's no teleporting, there's walking. It's one of the the most prolific um, metaphors in the entire Bible is this idea of walking. So today, 
we're going to turn our focus a little bit. It's the same verse, and I forgot to read it, so I'm going to read it now. Okay? So if we can put it up there, it's just one verse. This is 1 Corinthians 7. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all of the churches. Now we said last week, we are all the churches. We're part of that, all of the churches. And so it matters to us now. It matters to us last week. It matters to us today. It will always matter to us that we're called to lead the life that God has given us. And last week, we, we really leaned in to this part of the verse of your specific assignment. We talked a lot about walking. We talked a lot about assignment. And we barely hit on the word called. And so today, I want to lean heavily on the word called. What does it mean? What is calling in the Bible? If you're like me, I said this last week, this causes anxiety. Even the the topic of calling, you think, well, am I doing something wrong? Should I be here? Should I be walking on this path or over here? Did I make a mistake? Will I make mistakes? How do I know? Tell me, how will I know? And I think that's normal and I think it's even good because it calls us to trust. But here's a principle I want to introduce this week that I think will take us farther down the road in our contentment, and that is this. I think we find it hard to be content because we believe that calling is more about the future than it is about the present. In the Bible, calling is much more about the present than it is about the future. But that's not the way we talk about it, is it? In this verse, when when Paul tells us that God has called us, he's not mainly talking about that to which God has called us to. But he's talking about the situation in which God has called us now. That's the emphasis in this verse. And in the Bible, when the word calling is used, that is most of the emphasis. It's present, not future. Now, I think there are three truths that I want us to embrace or discuss in order to move towards contentment when it comes to where God has called us. And the first one is this, the dignity of the called. I think this is the first principle that we see. Now to understand the idea of called, I have to start here because it's important to place us in a larger story. Because when I say, what has God called you to? I think automatically, and I understand why this happens, our mind zooms in internally. And we think about, what has God called me to right now? And of course, that's what we're gonna talk about. But I think to place us, we have to zoom out. And so we need to talk about the dignity of the called. And this is all about image bearing, Okay. What story are we in? In the beginning, God created all things. And his creation culminates with his image-bearing people, with man and woman. And he gives us a mandate to go out and to subdue the earth and to multiply and to be his representatives in the world. And if you're familiar with the Bible, you know it didn't last Long, at least in terms of the way it's written in Genesis, it didn't last long. Very soon after that mandate was given, we sinned. Adam sinned. And that changed the entire plot line of the story. Everything we read after Genesis chapter 3, when Adam sins, everything after that you could call a rescue mission. 
God refuses to reject his original plan, but now the story changes and we now enter redemption or restoration. And this is the rescue mission. But you realize God didn't eradicate human beings and start over. He actually called us to be a part of this restoration. He called us to be a part of that. That's not what I would have done. I mean, think about it. But it's kind of like this. It reminds me of a story. Uh, when I was 15 years old and in high school, in my town of about 13, 14,000, when you were 15, you didn't have to have a license to drive a scooter. Okay, you know scooters, you still see them now. I don't know if it's like this anymore, but if they're under a certain CC, you didn't have to have your license, which meant my town of Jasper, Indiana was filled with gangs of scooters, okay? So we'd be driving and you'd be going to baseball practice and to school and to home. And, and my parents were very gracious. They trusted me. I, I think they should have trusted me. I'm not sure, but they did. And I could have gone anywhere. I had freedom to go anywhere. Uh, I could go to, to, to hang out with my friends. I could go to practice. I could go to school and home and it was great. But not everyone had a scooter. And my friend, uh, let's call him uh, Luke. Uh, Luke didn't have a scooter. There was one thing my parents constantly told me. No one else drives your scooter. No one. Okay, got it. Well, Luke, who didn't have a scooter, constantly asked me if he could ride it. And I forever and ever said no until one day he wore me down. I mean, seriously, We're 15 years old. It's a scooter. What bad could happen? So we're in my driveway. My parents aren't home. And I finally say, listen, you can go to this neighbor's house. You got to come right back. So he's about to go. But for some reason, he decides as though it's a Harley Davidson that he's going to rev the engine. It's a scooter. But he's revving the engine. And before I could do anything, he just takes off right at my dad's garage door and it's probably 15 feet and I just watch in horror as he's not he doesn't even slow down he speeds up and smashes into the garage door the whole bottom left side is bent up and in and I run to see if he's okay and I run up and I'm like Luke Luke are you okay and I remember he got off and he looked at me and he had eyes of terror and there's like a three second pause and he just takes off running And so here I am laying and like, seriously, I'm not exaggerating. Like I find the helmet he took off as he's running and he drops it and it's in the yard. And I'm thinking, what am I going to do? And just like a good movie, I mean, minutes later, before I could think of anything, my dad drives up and he pulls in the garage and he gets out of his car. And what does he do? He does exactly what you would have done. He does exactly what I would have done. And he said, what happened? And what did I say? Luke made me do it. Luke made me let him, he finally wore me down. And as I'm talking, he finally said, he made you do it? I said, kind of. And this is what he said. He said, just get out of here. Get out of here before you mess this up even worse. That's exactly what I would have said. It's probably what you would have said. And I remember I'm, I'm in a, we, have a, we had a bi-level house, my parents did. So what that means is that I could look from our kitchen down into our garage through the window. And I'm watching my dad hammer and push and fix this. And I remember the emotions. Everything in me thought, this is my fault. I directly disobeyed him. But all I wanted to do was somehow help, somehow be a part of fixing this, somehow be a part of restoring this. And you know, God 
probably should have done exactly what my dad did. He could have certainly said, get out of here. Let me fix this on my own before you do anything worse. But the dignity of his calling is that he restores us to be agents of change wherever he calls us. He actually invites us down to be a part of the restoration. That's amazing. And if we forget that, if we forget where we are in this grand story, our calling will never be enough. Wherever God calls us, it will never be enough for us because we will always want more. I love this phrase. Let me say this first. We understand, you understand, that the brokenness and sin of the world is much worse than a garage door being smashed. When Adam sinned, Brokenness went everywhere. It went to every square centimeter of existence. And so what that means is that God's redemption also goes everywhere. It goes every square inch, every square centimeter. God is doing the work of redeeming, which means that you and I are called in our places every day right now to tear off a corner of this darkness, to somehow be light and salt in the world, to push back the effects of sin in the world. And so the call, first of all, is the call to God himself. And when we're called to God, he enlists us with dignity to go into the places that he sends us. You see, Jesus is winning the war. Jesus is winning the war and he is winning small battles through you and me every day, wherever he calls us. I think this is hard to believe and I wanna talk about why this is hard to believe. That is to say, it's hard to really grasp the fact that God's primary call is about now, not the future. And it's about the call to himself And only then, only when we realize God has called us to himself, only then can we understand and embrace the dignity that he would call us to do anything with him. That he wouldn't say, get out of the way. This is your fault. I don't need you. And of course he doesn't need us. But he calls us with dignity to be a part of his restoration mission. So whatever you think your calling is, it has to start here. Wherever God calls you, he's calling you to push back the darkness, to tear off a small edge wherever you are. Now, in order to embrace contentment, we start with the dignity of our calling and knowing where we are in the story. But the reality is, is that this is hard. It's hard to be content. It's hard to believe this. And so next, I wanna talk about this truth that is the disposition of the called. How are we knowing what we just talked about, understanding where we are in the story? What is the disposition of God's called to be? Remember, your calling from God is more about the present than it is about the future, okay? So how does that change your disposition now? In our verse, Paul has zoomed out from talking about specific situations in Corinth. In Corinth, they're worried about marriage. They're worried about circumcision. They're worried about being wronged. And should I take my brother to a court of law? 
That's what they're worried about. And Paul is giving them instruction, but it's as though in verse 17, he zooms out to talk about what we're talking about. He zooms out to talk about the disposition of those who will know that they're called, that they're called by God. Paul is calling for a moment-by-moment disposition of faith. The Bible calls faith that is enacted, it calls that believing. So I'm gonna use faith and believing synonymously because when you live out your faith, the Bible calls that believing. And so Paul is calling us to a moment-by-moment disposition of believing God in our circumstances. That means God has called you to the life you are currently living. He's not called you to any other life. He's called you to your life. He's called you to your story. He's called you to your family. He's called you to your pain. He's called you to your joy. He specifically called you. And Paul is reminding us that if we're gonna talk about calling at all, we have to understand that in this present moment, God has never lost control of your life. Now, this is challenging for some of us. I mean, listen, we all have dreams. We all have dreams We all have desires. We all have hopes. And Paul's not speaking against those. So don't hear what I'm not saying today. And I'm gonna repeat this a couple times. I'm not saying it's bad to dream or it's wrong to dream. What I'm saying is that God has called you right now. And the Bible is very clear that even in our planning, we must know that every desire is accompanied with if the Lord wills it. Why? Because the only thing you know you're called to is right now. Some of us are in really hard marriages right now. And we wonder, is this just a season? Or is this what I'm called to for the rest of my life? I don't know. But I know that God is calling you and us to believe in that moment that he has not lost control. And yeah, you may have made mistakes, but the Bible is full of examples of people who made mistakes and they're where they are because they kind of contributed. We normally think of Joseph as a victim and in some ways he was a victim, but in some ways he was an idiot, right? I mean, Tim Keller has a great sermon on this. Uh, he's He's a pastor in Manhattan and I'll never forget how he unpacked the foolishness of Joseph that drove his brothers to hate him. And so it doesn't justify what Joseph's brothers did by throwing him in a hole and selling him off into slavery. Think of Samson even. Wow, colossal failure in some ways. But all of a sudden he he looks up and he says, I'm here because of me, but I know God is in control. And he says, God, I wanna glorify you right now where have you called me? How How do I do that? And so this gets into the whole idea of human responsibility and God's sovereignty. And of course, we can't solve that now. But we know that in our walking and our being called into the present, God has never lost control and we are completely responsible. Some of us have been so wronged by others that it's difficult to comprehend doing what Paul says in the surrounding context of this chapter. I know we didn't read it, so let me just remind you quickly. There are some people who have been so wronged at the church in Corinth 
that they're thinking about suing other brothers in the church. And Paul just asks, he just simply asks, he says, would you rather take your brother to a court of law or suffer being wronged? Which one? He doesn't necessarily tell them exactly what to do, but he calls them to contemplate where God has called them right now. Now listen, this is so countercultural. I mean, we live in a time of privilege and the illusion of control. Every single one of us, we really believe that we're in control of our life. I do, don't you? I mean, you woke up when you wanted, you got in your car. I drove here by myself. My family drove separately, right? Not very many places in the world are like that. I don't know any, I don't, this is part confession. I'm not sure what this is. I just, I don't have any friends that don't have a bachelor's degree, okay? And what that means is I live in a bubble inside of a bubble inside of a bubble, That's what that means. If the world's 7 billion people were made 100, one person out of 100 would have a bachelor's degree. Less than 30% of Americans have a bachelor's degree, right? But all of us, we live in this place called America where we have privilege. And that's not all bad. Power is not bad. The question is, how am I using my power for the flourishing of others? That's really the question. So I'm not speaking against power. What I'm bringing up is the fact that in a world where we really believe in this illusion that we control our life, it's hard to let ourselves be wronged by other people. It's hard not to say, I don't have to stay in this marriage. Forget this. I'm out of here. I don't have to go to counseling. I don't need help. It's that person's problem. This week, I was thinking about what sins would I have to turn to from and what truths would I have to turn to in order to embrace this, in order to believe that the disposition that I am supposed to lean into life with is one of faith and believing, that God has called me to this place right now. And I wanna go through these. So what will we have to turn from in order to believe this? I think the first thing we have to turn from in order to believe God in order to believe him that in his wisdom, he's called us right now to tear off the corners of darkness exactly where he has placed us. We have to get rid of our arrogance. We all have a tendency to think of ourselves more highly than we ought to. And we all functionally believe that we can accomplish more on our own than we really can. All of us. All of us think we know what's best for us. And so when we engage our relationship with God and we look at our current circumstances and we're discontent, there's a part of us that says, I would have done this totally different. This is not what's best for me. This is not right. This is not good. And what does this look like? What does arrogance look like in your life? Because some of us are thinking, well, I'm not arrogant. I don't struggle with arrogance. Well, do you, are you ever angry? I think anger comes from being arrogant thinking too highly of yourself than than you ought to think. Now, I'm not talking about righteous anger. That's over here. I'm talking about anger. I mean, the disguising emotion of anger. I think if you're afraid, you get mad. I think when you you sense a loss of control, you get bitter. Do you struggle with bitterness in your life? Bitterness towards people? In your despising of where God has called you right now, are you bitter? 
I think biblically that comes from, from arrogance. What about anxiety? Do you struggle with anxiety because you need control of your circumstances? And one of the most difficult things about really leaning in to where God has called you right now is that you just don't know the future. And so you're anxious. Aside from arrogance, I think we have to turn from our, our need to compare to other people. Constantly we're comparing. I mean, I think this is harder than ever in, a, in an age of social media. Some of you aren't even on social media and you still do it. And I'm gonna tell you how you do it in a second. But for those of us, most of us normal people who are on social media, this, this is what happens. I want you to know that 73 photos per second are uploaded to Instagram every, every second, worldwide. 73 photos per second are uploaded to Instagram. So before you do the math, I want you to know this. That means during this service, there will be roughly 328,500 photos uploaded for you to compare your life to. For you to look at and say, man, my life, I wish my life was like that. It's everywhere. We've, I think most of us have read articles about the danger and about the destruction that comparison on social media brings about in our lives. But it's not just that, it's when someone drives up next to us in a certain car and we think a couple things. One, I kind of wish I had the lifestyle in order to afford that car. Or we think, man, I could totally afford that, but I live within my means. (laughs) That person's just obviously living way beyond their means. See, it goes both ways. We can compare, we can covet, Paul says this in Galatians 3, 5. He says that to covet is idolatry. Why? Well, we sacrifice to idols. We believe in idols. We, we try to gain life from idols and comparing our idols to other people's idols. It's different for everyone. So not only do I think we need to turn from arrogance in order to believe God and where he's called us, we also have to turn from comparison and covetousness and we also have to turn from the patterns of this world. In Romans 12, Paul says that you are not to be conformed to the world, but to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And some of the translations translate that word patterns of this world. And that's right, because there's a mold of what's called the world in the Bible. And it's trying to fit us into it. It's trying to shape us. It's trying to mold us. It's trying to shape us after the patterns of this world. I think this is what it could look like. Some of us have high-valued jobs in the standard of the world. Some of us don't. And I know what you think if I ask you to imagine yourself right now at a party, meeting new people, and it gets to the inevitable question. So what do you do? I hate that question. Because for me, it normally, this is what happens. We're leaning in and someone says, yeah, yeah, that's great. Hey, what do you do? I say, oh, I'm a pastor. Oh, that's cool. That's cool. I mean, physically, they move back from me. (laughs) That's what happens every time. I'm a pastor. Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm serious. I hate that question. And I don't just hate the question because it's awkward socially. Sometimes I, I think, I don't think this is too strong. Sometimes I despise my calling. 
Sometimes I look back on my life and say, how did, how did I end up in ministry? This is crazy. So no matter which one, whether you like answering that question, you just can't wait to get to that question. So what do you do? I'm an entrepreneur, serial entrepreneur. <laughs> right? Whatever qualifiers you can. I, hey, I think it sounds awesome. Until I actually would do it. I'm just not made to do that. But blessings on you who are. So what happens when you have the, the highly valued job or occupation, I should say, and some of us who don't? Both of us can be conformed to the patterns of the world. Some of us dread that question. Some of us love it. But insofar as we find our identity in our occupational status, both of us need to turn from the pattern of this world because we're finding our identity in the answer to that question or in the fear of answering that question. We find our value in the answer to that question. And so obviously there's a flow to this arrogance, comparison, the patterns of this world. I think those are some of the things that we need to turn from in order to have a proper disposition of faith as the called people of God going out with dignity into the world to tear off a small piece and corner of the darkness that he's given you. And that includes changing diapers. It includes waking up with screaming babies and it includes million dollar business deals to bring about flourishing to people. So what will we have to turn towards in order to believe this? First of all, we have to turn towards this. God is glorified in the ordinary. 1 Thessalonians 4.11 says, aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands. This means many things, but at least it means this, that God is glorified in your everyday life. And in a culture of awesome, we don't believe that, right? Everything has to be awesome. Everything has to be awesome. Everything has to be big. Everything has to be important. Everything, see people in my generation, if you study uh, where people give their money in nonprofits, for example, um, most, of, most of them, most of people my age don't give a lot of money to one place. They give a little bit of money to lots of places and they definitely don't give to local people because they want to change the world. So they aren't giving to local churches. This church is an exception. They're giving to other things, good things, amazing things. So it's not about what they're giving to, for example, it's about what they want to be identified with. They want to be identified with changing the world because that's awesome. And waking up tomorrow and loving your neighbor, that's not awesome. So it's like C.S. Lewis who said, it's so easy to love humanity and it's so hard to love people. And so in a, in a world of awesome, we're going to have to believe that God is glorified in the ordinary. Think of the imagery of the farmer. Man, farmers, they do a lot of waiting and planting, and waiting, and then reaping, and then they do it again. Think about an athlete. It's hard work every day. You don't compete every day, right? I remember football practice. I hated football practice. I hated wrestling practice. Uh, I, some of you hate CrossFit, but you do it anyway, right? We, we don't like working out, but we understand what an athlete is. In order to reach a goal, we go through pain, and we go through everyday blondness and we do it when we don't want to. And somehow there's a payoff and the scriptures use farmer, they use athlete, they use ordinary. In a culture of awesome, we have to turn towards the truth that God is glorified in the ordinary. And that also leads us to this fact that joy overcomes boredom. So many of us are so bored. 
We're just bored. You think about Facebook, for example. I mean, YouTube. I can talk about Facebook, but I don't want to. I talk about YouTube. During this service, 125 hours of new, unique video will be uploaded to YouTube. In the next 72 hours, the internet, the internet, the entire internet will double in size in the next 72 hours. That's a lot of stuff. That's a lot of laughing cats and all sorts of other crazy stuff. (laughs) That we're like, oh, I don't want to do what I'm called to. I want to watch this. Now, listen, I am on Facebook and I check, I'm on Facebook every day. Okay, I'm on Instagram pretty much every day. I'm on Twitter multiple times a day. So don't hear what I'm not saying. What I'm saying is that in a culture of awesome, we begin to believe the ordinary doesn't matter and we begin to become bored. When God has called us with dignity to that ordinary thing, that hard day with your kids, that hard day in your cubicle, that day of beating your head against the wall, God has called us to that. And Jesus says in John 10, 10, that he gave life, he came to give life abundantly. We have to embrace the fact that joy overcomes boredom. And the key to get out of boredom isn't more YouTube. It's more Jesus. We also have to believe this. Every sad thing will be made untrue. This world is painful. Some of you, your parents are getting sick and you always knew it would come, but now you're having to arrange your life in such a way where you're taking care of them. Some of you have friends whose parents are getting sick. I know someday I will be sick. I'll be old and I'll need help. And I don't know, maybe I won't be old when I need help. But what I do know is that every day as I engage pain, in order to have the disposition of contentment, I have to believe that every sad thing will be made untrue. Revelation 21.5, Jesus says this. In the book of Revelation, we're told that Jesus will wipe away every tear. He'll make every sadness not sadness. And the last thing that I think we need to embrace is that God satisfies. Psalm 17.15, David, David rejoices in that it is God alone who satisfies. And the word satisfied is the same Hebrew word for having more than enough. So the idea of God satisfying, I have to, in order to have this disposition of believing in faith, wherever God has called me, moment by moment, I have to believe that God satisfies me and that whatever I feel like he's keeping from me in this life, whatever I feel like, if I just had that, I would be satisfied. If I could just do this, I would be satisfied. Whatever that is, we're promised that compared to what we will receive in eternity, this life is a vapor. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. I just told you this life is full of dignity. So it's, it's not about this life is nothing or this life doesn't matter. It's talking relatively. Relative to eternity, this is a vapor. And so whatever marriage we think we deserve, whatever career we think we deserve, whatever kids or marriage, or I already said that, whatever it is, we know that God is enough to satisfy. It doesn't make other things unimportant, but it puts them in perspective. So how is this possible? How is it possible right now? So we had to place ourselves in the larger story that wherever you're called, 
there is dignity there because God has called you to himself and he's called you to a place with him. We also said there's a certain disposition this creates in us. And there are certain things we're gonna have to turn from and there are certain things we're gonna have to turn to in order to be content and to fight towards contentment. And here's the other truth that we must embrace in order to move towards contentment in our calling and that's this, the death of the caller. The very one who called you to himself died because he wanted you. He wanted you. He died because he wanted you. Why do you think he died? At least he died because he wanted you. He wanted you to be with him. He called you to himself. The very one who called you to himself to be a child of God and then gives us the dignity to go exactly where we are and love the people he's put in our life. He died for us so that it could happen. So in a culture of awesome, know this, that Jesus died for what you're doing right now. Is that important? This week, I was reflecting on this. And um, I was driving when I was, reflected, when I was reflecting on this. And you know how this is. You think, oh, man, that's good. That's good. I got to write this down. Problem is, I was driving. And so I told my personal assistant, her name's Siri. I said, hey, Siri. And then I said something, and I can't remember what I said. But later when I got to my desk, I pulled out my phone and went to the notes section, and this is what she wrote down. I wish it was funny, but it's really not. It's actually very, it, was, it very impacted me greatly. It's not what I said, but this is what she wrote. Jesus and the Father sent. Jesus and the Father sent. And I thought, yes. Now I know how to do this. Now I know what to tell people after I tell them, this is what you should turn from. This is what you should do. This is what you should turn towards. I thought, they're gonna say, how? Do you live my life? You know how this is possible? And then there Siri tells me, Jesus and the Father sent. Jesus tells his disciples, listen, I have to die. I have to die for you. I have to die so that as the Father and I are one, we'll invite you into our joy and we'll all be one. I have to die for that. And you know what? It's actually better. Because when I am with the Father, the Father and I will send you the Spirit. I will not leave you as orphans. This is what the Bible calls it. I will send you my helper. At the end of Matthew, Jesus says before he goes, I will be with you always. Listen, Jesus died for us so that we could follow him. And in his death, he sends us a helper so that we can repent and there's joy. There's joy in the hard things. There's joy in the joyous things. There's life where there only should be death. There's dignity where there should be banishment. There's contentment where there should be hopelessness. And there's power where without God, there would be weakness. The Holy Spirit lives in you and dwells in you. And know this, every day, contentment is following Jesus. And there's not one place that he will go that you cannot follow him, even death. When you die, Jesus will welcome you in. The death of the caller gives dignity to your call and shapes you to be the person, shapes me to be the person we are to be in order to join him in that call. Let's pray.
Father, this is uh, invigorating to me, painful to me, and scary. It might even be confusing to some of us. I pray that, Holy Spirit, you would come and make us thankful. Make us thankful for the death of our caller. You've called us. This is so important, whatever you've called us to, because you died for it to be so. You've entrusted us in so many places and we ask that you would give us a a disposition of contentment and that our dreaming and our goals would be shaped by eternity and so that they would no longer be about us only, but they would be about our neighbor and they would be about flourishing. I pray in in a culture of awesome that we would plod, that we would be thankful that we would look to the imagery of the farmer, that we would believe that joy overcomes boredom, that we would believe that you are at work with us from one degree of glory to another, even when we can't feel it. Protect us, change us. In Jesus' name, amen.